Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, January 19th. Today we have an interview with Francine McKenna, a forensic accountant, investigative journalist. She has her own Substack. She's really good at digging through SEC filings and finding red flags in businesses and not letting them, I don't know, uh, breeze past the retail investors. Yeah, she's good really good at yeah investigating the disclosures, risk factors, things like that. Uh, so I learned a lot. I think anyone else would too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but before we get to that, we have our seven investing sponsorship promo, whatever you want to call it. It's Partnership. Code CCM. Yeah. Uh, and we always what well, we're going to do the seven different uh, advisors. Analysts, right? Yeah, they're advisors. lead lead advisors. Yeah. Um, and today we can do Austin Austin Lieberman, one mm. of the four people that started off the seven investing team. Uh, what's I mean I don't know if he stays. I guess he kind of leads into the software and high tech stuff, but it's not like. He's one of those guys that, you know, strict with that. Um, but I think what he does have his philosophy is is with taking high-risk, high-reward bets, but he sizes them appropriately. I think when he was on our yeah. show doing the 25 Stocks of Christmas, he may have discussed when last winter he made four different bets, you know, in highly – I wouldn't describe them as highly speculative names, but more risky names, smaller companies – um, but he only had him at 1% of his portfolio. But, you know, some of them didn't do too well, but one of them did quite well. So it's kind of like the uh, slugging percentage over batting average. That seems like a, his yeah. that's his investment style. And if it's up your alley too, I mean, he has a lot of good picks around that type of style. Yeah, he has a very good gut feeling for the market, which is kind of hard to, you know, uh, I guess you can't really put any numbers on that, but uh, I've, a lot of his picks have done really, really well, and it's not just him oh, yeah. broadcasting the big winners. Uh, yep, track record speaks for itself. Yeah. Uh, but now our stories for the week. What is your story? Yeah, hopefully this title's good for you this week. Uh, the Samsung Executive Imprisoned. Um, we'll good. get into the details of that later. But yeah, shorter story than yours, but I think, yeah. Yeah. Interesting enough. Mine is long. It's the scariest investor alive. Uh, it's about Paul Singer, Elliott Management. It's a story from a long time ago, but really fascinating. So I hope the listeners enjoy it. And then as always, we have hot water, current state of FinTwit, buy, sell, hold, and anecdotal evidence. Let's go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. I'm going to kick things off with the scariest investor alive. So it's a bit of a long story and this came out a while ago, but I don't think we've ever talked about it in any depth on here. So... I thought it'd be fun. Yeah, um, what inspired you to do this? You're just reading up on it. Yeah, I just thought about it yesterday, and I was like, God, like the the difference between individual investors and people like this is like it's totally different worlds. Yeah, um, I guess we were talking about financing Japanese war bonds in the early 20th century, a very exciting topic. Uh, but that might have that that was kind of similar, right? Yeah. So if you're looking for the full story, the New Yorker has it on him. Just look up like New Yorker Paul Singer or something like that. But uh, most people are familiar with who Paul Singer is. He is the founder and general partner at Elliott Management, which is one of the largest hedge funds in the world. Uh, but Singer's background: he was born and raised in the Bronx, which always that's just a cool 
background. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, he might like the Bronx. I don't. I don't. Know, I've never been there, but it sounds like he really had a tough upbringing. Bronx, know? Brooklyn, or Staten Island. That's where. Um, I don't know. It, <laughs> it always puts my like the grit factor seems higher. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but he got a degree in psychology at the University of Rochester, and then finished with Harvard Law School. I think he finished that in three years, um, and. He lost – apparently he lost most of their family's money when he started as a trader with his dad. So he then uh, – that's apparently what gave him such good risk management. Uh, and then he had a brief stint in corporate law but eventually came back and started Elliott Management in 1977 with $1.3 million in AUM. It's not a ton of money but uh, I would say that's pretty small for a hedge fund. I don't know what it is in today's dollars but – um, yeah, I mean, that's a small amount, especially to kick things off with. Um, but he's since become the face of basically conflict investing or uh, he's not afraid of litigation. Like it's not where you just buy there, sit, buy something, sit on the sidelines and wait. He is proactively making sure that his bets pan out. Um, and so he really made a living in the distressed debt world with both companies and foreign governments. Uh, so Elliott Management would find developing countries that borrowed way too much money and when economic disaster struck, they would spend time in court making sure they got their money. Uh, and yeah. he was like – it's one of the only investors I know that was almost hoping he'd get in court like legal battles because that's really where he generated a lot of returns because he was basically just ensuring that his bonds were senior to other bondholders and he would get paid first. Yeah, it's very. I mean, it's a smart strategy, especially because not a lot of people can do it, and he has the expertise, and I'm sure he's hired plenty of people that have the law expertise for whatever country they're dealing with, and they can kind of go into the room with an with a knowledge advantage there. Yeah, and at first he did this with Peru, and he had a lot of success, which set them set them up for an even bigger bet. Uh, apparently, it was worth approximately six hundred million dollars in Argentine bonds. Is Argentinian Argentine? Uh, either way, uh, it was Argentine bonds, uh, and a year <laughs> later, Argentina defaulted. Uh, apparently, they were in an economic depression. Seven in ten kids lived in poverty, and there was exceptionally high unemployment. Sounds like the perfect scene for Elliott Management to come in and swoop yeah. some returns. <laughs> and the, the the reason they're investing in these is because they're you know typically really high yields, correct? Yes, and uh, five presidents came and went within months in Argentina at the time, and finally, it gave rise to a couple who pledged to get rid of foreign capitalists. So that was like the thing they were running on. Like we're not going to be taken advantage of by all these other governments uh, just because – just for their own money and their own returns. And Argentina said the only hope bondholders had of getting repaid was to accept their terms. Uh, Singer did not accept those terms. Elliott Management sued Argentina in federal court in New York. Uh, and apparently this litigation took a really long time, more than a decade, and Singer did all he could to – Sees Argentina's assets as collateral. This is where it gets kind of interesting. Uh, including in 2012, when Singer got a warrant to seize an Argentinian naval ship oh, in yeah. Ghana. So he was he like not all a lot of governments don't want to give warrants to go seize stuff as collateral because it can you know be sort of like a war crime. Maybe yeah, not a war or, crime, uh, but uh, almost an act of uh, not, yeah, the, it's, a it's, it's an aggressive act. Yeah, and uh, but Ghana granted one, and so Argentina rushed to get a lawyer in Ghana, like the best lawyer they could to fight it. But Elliott Management had already hired the best one, so they were prepared. Uh, and the two went back and forth in court for a while. And at one point, a Ghanaian policeman came with a hydraulic crane and said he was going to board the ship. And basically, he's saying you have to get out. And uh, <laughs> Argentina soldiers 
drew their weapons. So he's like they're literally pointing guns at this guy like we're not getting off the ship. I don't care what your warrant says. Uh, and the ship finally sailed away after I think two years of litigation and litigation continued. Eventually, new Argentinian leadership was put in place and negotiations resumed. Apparently, like they had like stalled out. Uh, and remember, Elliott Management is a big company, so it's not just Singer. Uh, Singer subordinates at the time were doing most of the litigation. And apparently at one time, he was just finally tired of it. And he's like, all right, I'm coming in. And here's a quote uh, from the article. It says, Pollock told me, it quickly became clear to me that Singer had completely supplanted his subordinates and he was going to take over the negotiations. Before the meeting, Singer's personal security detail arrived at Pollock's office to conduct a sweep, checking the exits and making sure that the premises were secure. It just sounds like... A bit paranoid, maybe. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, I mean, he definitely has that aura or narrative of being a killer. I don't know. Uh, not something you want to go into a legal battle with. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, and finally, the negotiations, I believe, ended in 2016. I think they started in 2003. So we're talking about 13 years of like litigation and negotiations. And by the end, Elliott Management recorded a 1,270% return on its initial investment. 14x, not bad. Does or this, close to. Does this style of investing interest you? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. No way, no way. I mean, I, it seems like uh, someone like Paul Singer or Elliott in general um, – Icons, Starboard, and then Ackman's Pershing Square. I mean, they're getting into the news a lot, if that's your thing. Uh, you know, if you really want to, this is the type of investing that can get you into the news and yeah. may, give you a lot of notoriety, and it definitely works. They all have great track records, but feels a bit stressful. I don't know. <laughs> Not really up my alley. What, what do you think? This, uh, everyone talks about like ESG and conscious capitalism. This is like, as far the opposite as you can go. Find <laughs> countries where kids are living in poverty and the governments are sort of corrupt or they're not, you know, it's not working for the people uh, and try to capitalize on it. Uh, maybe. You can, uh, I don't I know. That, and then you can and put it that way. I don't know. I'm not sure if that was their motive. It might have just been some, Yeah, I know, mean, I don't think that's their motive is we're going to find impoverished countries, but they're just finding opportunities where there's high yield debt. Yeah, which just so happened to be countries yeah. that were on the brink. Um, yeah, could, hey, look, I, I don't want to defend them here because obviously they're pretty ruthless, but it might just be correlation. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, they're not uh, causing this. And uh, th- keep in mind, these are the activist investors that just took a uh, board seat on Twitter. Twitter. Oh, yeah. I, I, so if, uh, if Dorsey thinks he's just going to walk out of it. No, I would love to be a fly on the wall in the, the meetings with Dorsey just sitting there like, you know, I was on my French Polynesian trip meditating for a few hours and i think i did some stretching and then uh i thought you know we really shouldn't have trump on here and they're just like you know what why are you spending 900 million dollars in r&d yeah like <laughs> or whatever like i don't know yeah. and it's funny like i was reading up on this jesse cone guy and it's like paul singer's weapon like he's like all right go ahead jesse give him the call and like they're just like Calling CEOs, uh, calling like, the, yeah, right, CEOs. we have taken a 5% stake. Just wanted you to know that we'll be looking to make some changes. Yeah, it's like that scene in the – it feels like a movie scene when they talk about how he makes the call and the CEO's hand is shaking. They know that they're going to lose all their job and the salary and the billion, millions in stock bonuses that they're probably giving out to themselves. But yeah, yeah good right. story. I don't know. Yeah, what's your news story? 
Okay, another international kind of deal, geopolitical. Uh, Samsung executive in prison. So a Seoul High Court today sentenced Lee Jae-young to 2.5 years in prison. Lee was the ex-CEO, or maybe he's still the CEO of Samsung. Either way, he used to be an executive. Um, The sentence comes for bribing the ex-president, Park, who was impeached in 2016 on corruption charges. And, you know, this is very important for the South Korean and global economy because Samsung is by far the largest company in South Korea and accounts for one-fifth of global exports. I mean, if you're in America or probably even Europe, you, you understand that because you get the, the second best-selling phone, uh, you know, probably by revenue just because there's, there's a lot cheaper ones that sell for more volume. And then they got the TVs, refrigerators, all the electronics division. Um, and Lee has also been accused of securities fraud and stock price manipulation, which, I mean, we'll see. That's a separate charge, but it looks like there's a lot of, you know, I don't know, corruption going on here. doesn't seem like he has a very clean record. So No, no, not at all. And also his father, who is the ex-chairman of Samsung, was also convicted of bribery charges twice. Um, and no one knows if he's actually alive, which is kind of a long story. I think I mentioned it in one of our Hot Waters before, but... He had a heart attack or something like that in 2014, and they put him at the top of this hospital. Samsung might own this hospital, and they're like in the penthouse of something, um, and it's a rumor that he's up there, and he never leaves, This uh, the old chairman, uh, but no one knows if he's actually alive. It's kind of like a, um, who was, it's like an Al Davis thing with the Raiders, you know what I mean? They didn't, no one actually thought he, he could be dead, but, uh, you know, I don't want to speculate. I got a few questions. Um, does a story like this, where the government actually takes action against, you know, uh, bribery, securities fraud, stuff like that. Does that make you? Th- what does that make you think about investing in South Korea? Uh, I mean, yeah. Any time that the government is doing something, like uh, shows they might have their eye on the ball, you know. Yeah. If I don't know, I mean, frauds have been found out in China, and I don't know if it's been directly by the government, but well, there might be some government helping of the. Frauds yeah. in that country. It's more of the uh, American short sellers and, and other countries. Yeah, I mean, until, I guess, if, if there's a good auditor on their statements and stuff, uh, and it's not self-audited. Uh, but remember when we talked with Francine in the interview, I mean, sometimes the auditor, you know, like, even if it's good, you don't even know if it's a foreign country. So I, I don't know. I kind of, I think it's a good, I, I like it because it, it makes me give more confidence that South Korea is actually... You know, as a country, it's trying to be, I don't know, fair markets. You know what I mean? It's hard to describe, but. Yeah, yeah. I'd agree with that. And how do you think something like this would go down in the United States? Because I feel like they would get a a small fine, probably get like 1% of their net income in a fine, and then um, everything would go back to normal. CEO would get $100 million in stock options. I don't know. Maybe I'm being pessimistic, but. I mean, we haven't. Where's Where's Trevor Milton right now? Is he in? Where's Where's Adam? New- well, they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I guess Milton. How is that not securities manipulation? Yeah, no, that it definitely is, it? it is. But it'll take a few years in court. I mean, yeah, the purest one was Adam Newman because he didn't do anything wrong. He was just so good at telling the story. <laughs> and then Miles uh, yeah. son. All right, last question. Do you think the chairman? I mean, you haven't researched this. Do you think the chairman of uh, Samsung is dead or alive? If you had to bet. I don't know. I wouldn't want to sit in some penthouse for 20 years. I think he may be I think he may I think be it might dead. be a conspiracy theory. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but or we won't. Ever. Or we won't. Yeah. He, he, he'll be alive in 2050. Don't worry. Um, all right. Well, that's my story. A little shorter, but 
Good okay. update for anyone. All right, current state of FinTwit. I only have one thing. It's kind of interesting, um, but do you want to go first or you want me? Yeah, you can go first. Okay, so I saw this on Twitter, and I wanted to see what you thought. It was a post. I don't know where it's from, but I'm going to read it. Um, the guy's a mailman that posted this, and he said, I'm a mailman slash investor. I saw the rise of Etsy on the street, the name on a growing number of packages coming and going. I talked to people, did my homework, and I'm up about 10x over the last few years. I've also bought Stamps.com, Stitch Fix, and Amazon based on what I see on the street. I bought Netflix and O2 based on red envelopes, but didn't hold long enough. I've never been more excited for an IPO than I am for Poshmark, Poshmark, however you say it. They turned profitable profitable because their base is growing. Their ambassadors, big sellers, were given the option of buying shares ahead of the public. Users love to talk to me about this stuff. To say they are head and shoulders above the competition is an understatement. I see this as a good, safe place to park some money and make 8 to 10x over the next few years. Guess we'll see. How much of an edge do you think mailmen have? That's, That's the good. kind of analysts big funds need to be hiring. Yeah, their uh, hedge funds or whatever, um, the big billion-dollar funds are spending you know, a lot of money to get in that credit card data. They're even doing the satellite surveillance of parking lots and factories and stuff like that. And then this guy. All they need is the Newman. All they need is Newman, yeah. All right. Newman would be up for that. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, I just thought that was interesting. And no, it was good. It was does good. it make you a little bullish on Poshmark, Poshmark, how you said? Yeah, uh, I think it went out in absurd valuation, but I liked a lot of uh, their unit economics. Um, Is it out? I believe so. I believe it went out. We talked about it last week, or that was my story last week, and I. I th- this is not a. This was a pretty easy prediction, but I said like it's probably going to double, and I, I think it did that as well. Although it could be, I could be wrong. That could have been another company, like a firm, but it's hard to know. All the IPOs are popping one hundred percent now. Uh, okay, what's your? What do you have? Well, we all saw, I think, the FinTalk investors video. Oh yeah. Um, don't want to say those. I. I, we, I don't want to. Those, those people. I don't think anyone knows their names, but you probably know the video. Um, Buy stocks when they go up, sell when they don't. What did you think of that? He's not wrong. Yeah, so they're again. It's the, good in theory. The, again, the momentum strategies uh, are probably like, yeah, <laughs> this guy. I mean, <laughs> we can charge. We charge two and twenty for this, but I thought they probably outperformed most value investors this year. So. Oh yeah, I mean, they're his the Robinhood account that they. I don't know if it was both of those people, but the Robinhood account they showed. Uh, and again, a lot of people lie about those things with those screenshots, you know? Yeah. They're like, my account's up. It was up like a 1,000%. So, yeah, they're crushing everyone. Uh, but I thought the funniest part was a comment uh, when someone asked, like, or was like, how do you do that? And he was like, or he's like, that's dangerous. You're just kind of just buying things willy-nilly. <laughs> and their response was, it's only dangerous if you refuse to sell your stocks when they go down. Don't do that, LOL. <laughs> I mean, it, I I hope they're just trolling the momentum strategy because I think they're sincere, but they're also trolling momentum, which I think is kind of funny. This is like, this is the stuff that makes me really optimistic about companies like The Motley Fool. Like, hopefully that's a much better funnel. Oh, yeah. Because, I don't know, FinTalk, uh, Wall Street bets, it's probably not good. For most no, no. retail investors. You should spend your time with Seven Investing and Motley Fool. Those people will teach you actually how to invest yeah. in uh, blah, like those kind of in individual yeah. companies safely and you know with the right risk, whatever you want. You know. Yeah. It's just – watching it is so 
Like, you do cringe a little bit. Oh, definitely. I don't even, I can't watch them because I know it's just, I, I just read the, you know, the little transcript also, thing. What happens when you wake up, like, uh, you wake up and your stock's down 45% like that happened to whatever the QS company? Like, it's a good question. Well, sell when it goes sell, down. Yeah, sell before that. Or, great, you just lost all your. I, mean, I wonder. I mean, I wonder how many earnings seasons they've been through because, you know, I mean, yeah. stocks go down like twenty percent during earnings season when the information changes. But uh, it also makes me think. Uh, people are like, "Nah, this doesn't feel like the the dot com bubble." And it's like, well, if if this isn't euphoria and greed and hubris, what is? I mean, could it get worse? Maybe I'm just more aware of it now. Maybe it's always going on, but no, 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 no. You seen those call option numbers? They're insane, insanity. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's it, right? That's all we have. Yeah, we got the interview next. Okay. Uh, so few things on the interview. I guess this is time we gotta uh talk about her Substack, right? Yeah. So she said uh, the the Substack is called the Dig. Um, and I'm going to pull up her email right now. If you find her on Twitter, it's Francie McKenna. If you search it, uh, she's got a pretty popular name. Uh, but that, it's called The Dig at Substack. And if you DM her, tell her that we sent you, that you listened to her on the show, she will give you a 20% discount. Yeah. Uh, someone, I know it might be like for the first month or maybe it's for the entire thing. But yeah, if you like what she uh, is doing and you think you want to learn about that type of stuff, I mean, it's a fantastic resource. Yeah, I feel like we're pumping things on here all the time, but she gave us a look at the Substack, and it was really good. Yep. Uh, yeah. And so, if you're even considering it, just be like, "Hey, yeah, DM her." I think her DMs are obviously open, and just mm-hmm. be like, "Hey, chit chat money, listen." And they said, uh, "I could get twenty percent off." Yeah. And what was your favorite part of the interview? Oh, Uber, I'd say, Uber or stuff. Um, I don't the internal controls or weaknesses. Yeah. She kind of she kind of says those are things that she looks for. Yeah. Uh, I've been since every SEC filing I've looked at, I've been like digging into that control F, funny. control Fing it. Uh, yeah, that's good. I like the auditor stuff too. Uh, I'm trying to learn oh, yeah. more about that. I know that's kind of tough to understand because you really don't know sometimes whether the auditor is good or not. Uh, but yeah, thought it was good to talk either way. Okay, and I should mention as well. At one point, I think it's like uh, early on in the interview, the dog. There's a dog in the background. Uh, you guys will probably be able to hear it, but it goes away after yeah, a little bit. Yeah, so there, it was there for like deal. three minutes or something. So yeah, just know it goes away. Um, but yeah, here's the interview. Hope you guys enjoy. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Today we are welcomed by Francine McKenna. Francine is a certified public accountant and independent journalist. Francine is also a two-time Gerald Loeb Award finalist. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Why don't we kind of get started with your background? So tell us why you got into finance, where did you go to school, and then uh, what led you to journalism? Sure. Um, it's it's sort of a long and winding road, but it just goes to show that uh, it's never too late to keep changing and doing something else. So I, uh, I'm i a Chicago native, South Side of Chicago native, and I went to Purdue University for an accounting degree. 
Um, and that wasn't really my first choice. I thought I was going to go to law school. But, you know, in those days, it was sort of what should a girl study so that they can get a job? And uh, it wasn't nursing and it wasn't teaching. So it was accounting. And I didn't really when I wanted when I got out, I didn't really want to go work in the public accounting firms. I had no um, context for that. My father was a Chicago fireman, so I didn't know anything about that culture, that uh, that opportunity. And so I went to work in a big bank in Chicago and uh, Continental Bank was actually the first too big to fail bank. Uh, it was the one that went um, uh, uh, nearly bankrupt, got uh, taken over by the U.S. government because of the Penn Square syndicated loans crisis back in the 80s. And so I joined right sort of in the middle of this crisis and started doing uh, internal audit work for trust accounts. So people owned uh, in these trust accounts. Um, real estate, like more farmland, minerals, and other kinds of alternative assets. So the early days, of that's what used to be an alternative asset, uh, mineral rights and uh, farmland and, uh, you know, uh, some kind of uh, obscure stuff that you inherited from uh, your, rich, your rich relatives. So I was doing internal audit of those trust accounts, and um, the bank ended up getting taken over by the government. I left and I ended up in a couple of uh, companies doing uh, basic accounting, uh, controller, uh, general ledger manager. I was responsible for, you know, all the stuff, payroll, et cetera, et cetera. And that was fun because you were managing people. You were doing the month to month, day to day kind of stuff. And I got tired of that routine. So those of you who've ever been an accountant or know accountants, that if you're working in a company, that monthly routine, quarterly routine, annual routine is pretty uh, uh, routine. It gets kind of tedious. And I liked all the project work. I liked when there was a problem. I liked when we were implementing new software. So I gravitated towards um, the consulting firms. And that's when I ended up going to work for KPMG. So about 10 years into my career was when I ended up in the firms, but at the consulting side. Uh, working on implementing software for state and local government. So the I was the accounting person in the state and local government software stuff and worked for KPMG, worked in Latin America, ran the project for JP Morgan for year 2000 in Latin America <laughs> um, and came back and was sort of trying to do independent consultings around the same stuff. Sarbanes-Oxley had been passed because of the Enron failure and it was a little hard as an independent person to try to, you know, put together a team and go down to Mexico and Brazil and Argentina, you know, and, and manage that kind of process. So I was attracted to a job at PwC in 2005. And they said, come in, we'll make a job for you. Well, I'll give you a clue from a career perspective. If anybody ever says, come in, we'll make a job for you, turn around and run in the other direction. <laughs> and the reason is because... When you're going into a firm or going into a company and there's not a well-defined role or responsibility, um, the minute you get in, uh, people wonder what the hell you're doing there. And uh, it can breed resentment. And in particular, in companies or firms like the accounting firms where people grow up with the firm, they start there you know, as interns in college. Somebody comes in from left field as a very senior person and starts giving their opinion about how they do stuff. You're not very popular. 
And that was uh, what happened after about a year and a half. And I left PwC. And that's when I started a blog. This is 2006. And I said, how, you know, can I use all this experience I've had over the years? Uh, people said, write a book. But, you know, how do you get an agent? How do you write a book if you're not associated with a company or a firm or, or a university or, you know? And in those days, there were a lot of these confessional bloggers, people writing about stuff to try to get a book contract for, you know, uh, the guy that the guy that was a model for me was a guy who was a bouncer in the bars in New York. And he was writing about being a bouncer. It was called standing on the box. You know, he was the bouncer in these clubs in New York and he would go through all this stuff. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to tell the inside stories and, you know, be the one that's there, you know, observing where people don't even know that you're observing. And so I started a blog and the lucky thing or an unlucky thing was it was right before the crisis really started blowing up. And there was really nobody who had had the kind of inside experience I had at the partner level, uh, managing people, working outside the U.S. There was nobody like that who was free to talk about it who was really providing good information to everybody who was writing about what was happening in, um, you know, the banks and, and AIG and, you know, Goldman Sachs and et cetera, et cetera. So I started being uh, asked to give quotes and then I started uh, being asked to write about stuff. And that's when I started writing. And that's sort of the, you know, once I started doing that and, Probably when Lehman failed and Ernst and Young ended up in the spotlight, um, then suddenly it was like no going back. I had really sort of burned bridges in terms of ever going back to a firm. <laughs> and, right, right. Um, and I thought, okay, I got to move forward, and so I, I, you know, made a new profession. Did the uh, did the crash kind of uh, get you a bigger audience because it was so? Uh, I don't absolutely, know, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, let's be honest, you know, accounting and audit and corporate governance, you know, unless you're actually working in it, you know, most people think it's kind of boring and they don't see where the sex, drugs and rock and roll are. They don't see how that's going to really impact, you know, the share price. You know, you had a question, you know, when you sent me, you know, things we could talk about. Does the auditor matter? You know, and I would say in a lot of cases, people's perception is that it doesn't. And my job was, job one was to tell you about the times where it does, where it does matter. And to try to do that in a way that people, um, you know, sort of were like, whoa, okay, that's interest. That's more interesting than I expected. And I definitely, you know, had an opportunity to prove that there was more to the story. There was more to the auditors. They were not sort of these capitalist eunuchs sitting on the sideline, you know, not involved in what was going on or potentially, you know, tempted by what was going on. Um, I actually tried to do a, get a book contract about a year after I started the blog in 2007. It was too soon, right? And the agent said, come back when you have more sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And now, you know, 13, 14 years later, um, I have a lot. There is a lot. And, and it's nonstop. And, you know, 
they're like everybody else. And so there's plenty of stories out there. Right, right. And now you have the day, which is a new um, newsletter you started. I'm not sure when um, you uh, launched that, but uh, why did you start that on your own? I think it's uh, through Substack. And what does a subscriber get, you know, when they sign up? Sure. So um, I started uh, my blog, my legacy blog in 2006, and that was called Re the Auditors. And that's still out there. And anytime I wrote for others like Forbes or uh, for Market Watch, where I was a full-time employee for five years, I kind of had to back off of the blog, you know, because you owe your loyalty to, you know, to the outlet and you've got to give them your best stuff. Um, while I was writing for Market Watch, there was more than enough, you know, opportunity for me to get out all kinds of stuff that I was thinking about, plus more stuff that they asked me to do that wasn't even really about auditors, which was great. But um, I started thinking probably in 2018, 2019, I don't know how much longer this is going to last because in particular, politics is really, really, really the key focus in Washington, D.C., in the bureau where I was. And although they wanted regulatory and all of the things that the SEC was doing and all of that kind of stuff. If something happened, if Trump tweeted, okay, that took precedence. Right. And you always had to be talking about the politic political angle of whatever it was you were talking about. So, and of course, always, you know, why should investors care? And sometimes investors just were not interested. They were interested in the politics. And certainly in Washington, that was the focus. So I decided to leave um, MarketWatch in November of 2019. Um, there were a couple stories that I wanted to do and they didn't want to do them. And I said, you know what, I know how to be on my own. And I had been seeing Substack for a while. Um, they had been asking me to write for them, but I couldn't do it because I was employed full time. And, you know, you can't, I really, it wasn't worth it for me to do it if I couldn't get paid. And so I kind of, the minute I knew that I was leaving, it was really a one, two, three to set it up. Um, I had, you know, stories to, to go with immediately. And I left, uh, my last day was November 22nd. And my first um, post that I put out was November 24th. All right. Yeah. Uh, we do want to dig into uh, sort of your work with SEC filings and kind of give uh, our listeners something to, take away from that uh, because a lot of our listeners are individual investors. And when they look at SEC filings, they probably see a lot of stuff that they don't think is that relevant. So from your perspective, where do you think uh, investors should spend a lot of their time and effort when looking at SEC filings? And then do you have any big keywords uh, that they should use? Because I know a lot of people just control F and try to find certain words in the document. Sure. So one of the things that was a big revelation to me when I came to MarketWatch, that's a very investor-focused site. And the people in New York and, and San Francisco that focus on companies, um, they focus almost exclusively on the earnings releases. And um, that's what drives, you know, sort of, you know, earnings is coming out, conference calls, et cetera. This is what's happening. You know, what, what's the announcement? How are they, how are they uh, measuring up compared to estimates or guidance? And that was just that just blew me away because as, a, as an accountant by training, I'm looking at 
the filings. I'm looking at the 10Q, the 10K. I'm looking at the proxy. I'm looking at uh, any other additional filings that they make. I'm looking at the real numbers. And earnings is not real numbers. Earnings are unaudited results. Earnings are sort of projections and forecasts. Earnings are, in many cases, dominated by non-GAAP or non-standard accounting metrics. Um, and when um, my colleagues at MarketWatch started getting used to the idea, oh, we have an accountant here you know, on staff, we can ask her questions about stuff we don't understand in the earnings release or stuff that they you know, say in the conference call. And they would ask me a question, I would say, but the earnings release, you know, has one line. It doesn't explain this. Well, yeah, that's why we're asking you. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to know? They don't explain it. You know, you, we need to look at the queue. Well, that won't be out for another, you know, two weeks. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll look at it, you know, when it comes out. And we'll, we'll, well, by that time, I'm already looking at the next earnings release. <laughs> and it, it, it was a, it was apparent to me that investors in general, or at least active investors, um, we're not looking at the Qs and the Ks anymore. They were really, really focused on what the company said in the earnings releases. And I thought that the SEC and others had really gotten away from making sure that what was said in the earnings releases eventually or, or matched what companies put in the Qs and in the Ks later. And they don't sometimes. Sometimes there's very significant adjustments or changes Sometimes the earnings releases are dominated by non-GAAP metrics and they bear absolutely no relation to the actual accounting numbers. So what do I do? I focus on the Qs and the Ks and I encourage others to look at the Qs and the Ks. Why? Because that's where the real numbers are. That's where audited numbers will be once a year. And that's where they're going to give you a lot more information about What's going on? Um, S1s are, of course, very, very interesting. The, you know, the filings for companies that are going to IPO. Um, those are a little different than the Qs and the Ks. Of course, they have audited financial statements. They're going to have two or three years worth of audited financial statements, the actual real audited financial statements. But they've got a lot, a lot, a lot of puffery and marketing and kind of like blah, blah, blah. Here's who we are and here's how we're going to change the world. But what's interesting is they also have an enormous amount of information about risk factors, and they also have an enormous amount of information about the history of the relationship that the company has with the auditor. And if they've had any stumbles or changes or any issues along the way. And I think that that's something, again, that um, most active investors kind of ignore and instead, that's what we started focusing on when we were doing sort of five things to look for in an S1 at MarketWatch. And it's a nice little template that I came to really love, except I focused on the things that um, uh, others maybe wouldn't like control uh, and material weaknesses in internal controls, uh, auditor changes right before the IPO. Um, things like, you know, what is the control structure of the company and whether you're really going to have any influence whatsoever and other kinds of risk factors that are kind of, that kind of stick out. Um, I remember in Levi's, uh, which has been public more than once and went public a couple of years ago again, um, Levi's had a, a risk factor about how they were concerned about climate change 
Um, and we were like, wow, somebody's actually talking about climate change in a, you know, in a filing. But the reason was because they sourced an enormous amount of their um, materials and had lots of manufacturing in places that were um, vulnerable to uh, the rising um, um, sea levels. So they were in a lot of places like the Philippines, coastal areas of Thailand and other Southeast Asia or South American places where like people are working in places that could be run over by, you know, <laughs> by tsunamis or water, you know, that's rising. And we were like, wow, that is really weird. Like this is, this is the stuff that, you know, sort of the fundamentals that I think um, it would, it would be great if people were focused more on, but we've gotten sort of divorced from the fundamentals. We're looking at, you know, momentum and volatility and what's happening tomorrow and, how is, you know, what the company says in the earnings release driving the stock tomorrow. And in the end, um, companies can't sustain um, that momentum if they've got fundamental things wrong. And it will, it does pop up eventually. And, you know, sometimes the risk factor section can be upwards of like 50 pages long. Um, I think investors get daunted by that. Is there any way that, you you know, to help try to, you know, either speed things up or just make that research part more efficient, you know, especially in the S1. So I, um, I pointed you uh, to a, a newsletter um, issue that I put out, which is basically how I look at an S1. And there's a couple of, uh, you know, there's a list of sort of uh, top 10 things. And there's also, um, you know, some examples from recent S1s. And I'd be glad for any of uh, your listeners, if they get in touch, uh, to give them a significant discount on a, on a, on a trial to, to the uh, uh, newsletter so that they could take a look at that. Because it was one of my most popular newsletter items. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is interesting. I look at things like um, control, weaknesses. I look for things like um, I always look at what they say about revenue recognition because we had a huge uh, change in how revenue is recognized at the beginning of 2018, a big new standard, and companies are still digesting that. And many of them are trying to um, work around the edges and take advantage of sort of loopholes in those rules and the enormous amount of judgment. And depending on the industry, um, you know, they're dealing with that very differently, but we've seen some patterns develop in certain industries for example, anything um, where there's subscription revenue, um, media, where there's any kind of repetitive advertising, any kind of long-term contracts like in defense industry. So there were specific areas that had dramatic impact from the new revenue rules. Um, uh, leasing, so Tesla had a big positive impact because of the impact on leasing. Any kind of long-term contracts, any kind of subscriptions, um, any kind of um, uh, def situation where you have deferred revenue or had deferred revenue because you sold something like software, hardware, and services in a, in a bundle. Those companies had significant changes. Sometimes it was negative. Sometimes they had to regroup and say, I can't do this anymore. I can't pull this revenue in uh, as quickly as I used to. But in a lot of cases, it was, oh, now I can pull this in more quickly because I get to make the judgment on how this looks based on how I see my obligations in delivering that, that product or service. 
So revenue recognition right now is a big one. Um, a lot of people talk about leases, but leases, again, very specific to certain industries. If you're looking at airlines, if you're looking at, um, uh, I don't know, some com a company that leases an enormous amount of its uh, uh, physical infrastructure, um, you know, like a franchise business or some kind of uh, some kind of retail outlet if they're leasing a lot of buildings. But in general, that banks, of course, but in general, the impact of that is over. Um, it is what it is. And um, that's over. Revenue recognition is a little bit different because we went to a very principles based approach. And um, there's a lot of companies that are taking advantage of that leeway. And you've got to really look and say, oh, what are they doing here? Does this make sense? And, and how does, what does this mean for what we can expect? Okay. And what do you look at in a proxy statement? I know that's one that, again, investors kind of get daunted by. And a lot of people don't look at it at all. You know, it's a long document. It's out once a year. Uh, what kind of stuff do you look for in that? So uh, proxies, of course, are very, very, very helpful. They're, they're the number one source. If you're looking at... Um, Related party transactions, you're looking at um, who's who on the board of directors. Are there unusual people sitting on the board of directors that either aren't qualified or that are, you know, somebody's brother-in-law or daughter or somebody who doesn't, you know, who's who's doing a job that should be done by somebody who has more competence? Um, also, you know, you have companies that have super, super, super aged uh Board of directors, people that are really, you know, past their sell-by date in terms of, you know, active business uh, uh, activity and experience. And I hate to see them on the audit committee. Um, I'm looking at, uh, of course, the section on the auditors, which is uh, that's the only place where you're going to find how long has that auditor been in place and how much are they getting paid and what services are they providing and are any of those services, um, you know, on the edge of things that they sh maybe shouldn't be providing because they present a, an independence or a conflict of interest in their primary auditing uh, role? And then finally, um, if there's an issue about um, non-yet metrics and how they might be affecting uh, compensation. So I've caught a few situations where companies were adjusting revenue. And that was specifically so that they could create an adjusted revenue metric so that uh, executives could get paid um, on, on a, some kind of inflated revenue metric or, you know, uh, custom revenue metric that had bared no relation to actual uh, gap or accounting standards. So you're looking at the compensation uh, part of it. And you're looking at not, you know, all the really tedious details about any particular executive's contracts. Um, there are some other uh, substicks that are really good uh, for that. And I can, I can send you a, a list for the ones that are really focused on executive compensation. But when it comes to how does um, the accounting or the non-GAAP metrics that they're using flow into how executives are getting paid, I've written quite a bit about how, you know, Elon Musk and um, Iger over at Disney and some others have used sort of the non-GAAP metrics to make sure that they got paid no matter what the uh, results of the company were. I was about to ask about uh, adjusted EBITDA as a performance metric because even companies we like, uh, sometimes we look in there and a lot of the 
uh, executive compensation is tied to like non-GAAP adjusted EBITDA uh, metrics. Is that like a big red flag for you? And then what are some metrics that you like to see or that you think uh, can be tied to success in the future? Right. So um, many people have the impression that I'm totally anti non-GAAP metrics. That's not really true. Um, The purpose of non-GAAP metrics is to allow a company to say something a little bit more or a little bit different to explain something that maybe is an anomaly or a one-time kind of unusual thing that does not really well explain the, the future trend. So something's happened. They have to book it for accounting purposes, but we really don't want to incorporate that number, that impact into the long-term trend. So in those cases, that to me is a reasonable situation. Let's say a one-time restructuring charge or a one-time unusual item related to an acquisition or something like that. However, it's become really, really, really abused because companies are just plugging in things that basically they don't like. So the biggest, you know, the most controversial item is, you know, adjusting for um, stock-based compensation, okay? Well, in some companies, that is a huge, huge, huge number. And you have companies that are of losses. You have these new IPOs, and they're not making money. And yet, they're paying enormous amounts in stock-based compensation, And so the adjustment for stock-based compensation really skews your look, your outlook in terms of how are they prioritizing? You know, there were companies that were losing money and getting PPP loans during the COVID crisis, and yet they've got huge stock-based compensation. They're paying out huge, you know, they're still paying out all this stock-based compensation. So looking at that adjustment and its relationship to, you know, why are these guys still getting paid? You know, how, how does that bear, you know, any relation to what uh, is really going on in the company and whether, you know, the results justify that? Um, restructuring, of course, has become another area where people are abusing. So companies used to go through big restructuring because something very dramatic happened in their industry or in their environment, and they had to reorganize and Yes, there were one-time charges for, you know, cutting people or, you know, moving buildings or whatever. Now it's a chronic thing. Now you have, you know, just on and on and on. And so they uh, load all kinds of other expenses into a restructuring charge that goes on for years and years and years. Every, Every quarter they've got some kind of restructuring charge that they're pulling out of results. Um, the one that I'm uh, really hot on and that I'm pushing the SEC and I've been writing about and I'm going to write about some more tomorrow uh, is uh, adjusting revenue for um, uh, deferred revenue that they acquire during an acquisition, but that gets written off permanently during the acquisition. And yet companies are keeping a, a kitty, a, a cookie jar of these write-offs and adding them back in to their EBITDA and saying, you know, we really hate that we had a write-off this deferred revenue when we acquired this company. That's the accounting rules, but we don't like that. It's not fair, wah, wah, wah. And we want to add it back in. And we're going to kind of think about when we might have recognized this revenue if we weren't forced to have to write it off because of accounting rules. 
And basically, it's just a cookie jar. They can plug in when you know this 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 revenue whenever they want in order to hit earnings and you know in order to hit targets for compensation. Um, so what you want to look at in that reconciliation that's that actually is required in the earnings release. So the reconciliation between GAAP and non-GAAP, you want to look for stuff that is not a one-time anomaly. You know, uh, something that really is required to explain an unexpected kind of hit or trend that isn't going to happen again. And so therefore we want to sort of separate out and sort of keep the trend going in the, in the normal, you know, kind of operations. If they start adjusting constantly for the same old stuff over and over, basically to burnish uh, the results, the, the most egregious examples are when you have companies that are, that are showing losses on a gap basis, and all these adjustments consistently put them in a profitable uh, category. And that, you know, using the adjustments in order to consistently put yourself in a, we're showing a, a, a non-gap profit, but we're consistently showing a gap loss, you know, something's wrong with that picture. And again, it can't be sustained um, over a long term. And, you know, what's the long term? Well, sometimes you have to wait, you know, with some of these companies that have eventually sort of gone, you know, down the toilet, there's a lot of back and forth. There are a lot of people who want to prop it up. There are a lot of people who want to tell the opposite story. And, you know, as short sellers will tell you, okay, you know, sometimes you got to wait a long, long time for it to sort of, you know, self-immolate, you know. <laughs> you don't have, you know, the SEC is not going to come and save the day all the time and say, oh, yes, this is a massive fraud. Sometimes the company just has to, uh, you know, go down the toilet on its own because it runs out of cash. Okay. And I guess one follow-up on that, you know, we look at the options packages that companies give out to their executive teams, specifically the CEOs. Um, are there any red flags you see within that or maybe an example of a red flag? And then what kind of options are, you know, there's the standard stock option and then there's restricted stock units. I guess, you know, what are your thoughts on restricted stock units? Um, so, you know, uh, as an accounting professional, I'm really, uh, kind of a tight ass because I don't think CFOs should get stock options. Okay. So if you have the ability to influence the financial results, then you should not be getting, um, you know, compensation that's based on, you know, the performance of the financial results. The performance of the stock price is a little bit different. Okay. Because we know anything can happen when it comes to the stock price. But again, there's lots of things that management can do in order to influence the stock price too, like buybacks or these kinds of, you know, uh, rah-rah earnings announcements that then end up being sort of tempered or, or sometimes even corrected by the time you get to the Q or the K. I mean, there was a famous um, <coughs> story that my colleague wrote at MarketWatch about Citigroup. When you had the Tax Reform Act, um, you know, when you had the new tax law in 2017, um, many companies, the banks, they all had significant impacts from that. Some of them very positive, some of them very negative. And the announcement of what your impact was, everybody was interested in, 
But in general, everybody decided the tax reform was sort of a one-time thing. It was going to impact you sort of at the beginning of 2018 to end of 2017. They were going to throw out a number. And then going forward, everybody knew what the tax rate was and everybody knew how your business was going to be affected or not affected, depending on if you had stuff outside the U.S. or whatever. And in general, companies were pretty consistent. Almost always, they pulled the impact of the Tax Reform Act out of gap results. So that that's sort of a justified non-gap adjustment, all right? This is a one-time thing. We're not going to have a lot of different changes or whatever going forward. We're going to take that out because sometimes it was millions and millions of dollars, and it really was a dramatic difference. Some companies didn't. If it was positive, they pulled it into gap. And some companies, if it was negative, they forgot to pull it out. Okay, so some people are just dumb. But what was interesting is that Citigroup and some companies actually had to make very significant estimates in some areas. And they made an estimate and they plugged those into their earnings results. And in Citigroup's case, they plugged in a result into their earnings and they announced earnings. And then when they got to the queue, they realized they were off by like several hundred million dollars. Yikes. Um, there was another recent situation where um, Goldman Sachs uh, has had two very significant judgments related to 1MDB, related to their legal liability for the 1MDB fraud. And in both cases, they made their earnings announcements, did not say anything about the fact that they may or may not have settled those, uh, those uh, amounts. And then they plug them in between the earnings announcement and the queue. Okay. Uh, all right. So that's a definite red flag, right? Yeah. That's keep, a definite red flag. Keep an eye uh, out for changes before the 10 queue. Before the, yeah. The, well, the 10, the queues, the, the you know, the quarterlies, that's a little bit more subtle. But when you have a change like Citigroup did for the K, right. where they actually announced their fourth quarter, they announced the results for the K for the year, and then, you know, the Ks take even longer, usually like another month before they come out. Yeah. I mean, and they had a significant dramatic difference. That's yeah. a big deal. All right. And I guess we'll we'll switch back to, you mentioned before, you talked about how the auditor does matter. I know the majority of people, you know, whether just it's not on purpose, they just ignore who the auditor is. Um can you explain why that is important when looking at financial statements and then any, you know, times where there's like conflicts of interest or maybe an example of an auditor historically acting ethically and where you can find that uh, potentially in the filings? Okay. So um, one thing that a lot of uh, investors, especially newer investors, um, um, think is that if you have one of the largest, one of the big four audit firms, in particular, like if you're investing in companies in emerging markets like China, et cetera, if you have a big four audit firm name associated with it, you know, you're good, right? Those are vetted. You know, these guys are on the job. They're the pros, right? And the reality is that, yes, there are wonderful, smart, competent, ethical people at all of the firms, large and small. But the firms are separate legal entities in every country that they operate in. And in China, they're really divorced from any kind of control by any of the uh, uh, developed market companies, uh, developed market firms. So 
like U.S. or U.K., there's only so much they can do to influence um, how the Chinese member firm is addressing audits, et cetera. So Alibaba is the big example uh, right now. Alibaba and Ant is very, you know, controversial situation. Alibaba went public um, and got a listing here in the U.S. And Alibaba is audited by the PwC Chinese firm. And that firm has never been inspected. There's no uh, ability for U.S. regulators to go in and look and say whether or not that firm is following U.S. auditing standards or whether any of that work is being done properly. So that's one issue, okay? The firms have varying quality in all locations depending on the local management because each firm in each country is a standalone kind of partnership that runs itself like a little franchise. And they just have this marketing umbrella over them that say, I belong to the PwC network or I belong to the Deloitte network or I belong to the KPMG network. So that's one thing. The other thing is that um, auditors are part of now very large firms that also do tax work and do a lot of consulting work, uh, you know, KPM or PwC and Deloitte do an enormous amount of uh, technology work. Uh, they all do work around, you know, being monitors or helping investigate when a when when there's a fraud allegation or a whistleblower allegation. So there's an enormous amount of work that they want to get from the largest clients, the big multinationals, etc. They don't have anything to do with audits, and you can see in the proxy sort of whether or not those audit firms who are designated as the auditor have also been doing lots of other work for that client that maybe is skewing or compromising their ability to focus on being an objective, independent arbiter of whether or not the company is following accounting standards. And the classic case is Enron, where, you know, all that stuff happened and all the new regulation came in because there was this perception that Arthur Anderson, who ended up, you know, going out of business, um, Arthur Anderson had taken their eye off the ball of the auditing. They were too focused on doing all kinds of other M&A consulting work and tax work, et cetera, that they were never going to, you know, call out the company for any kind of shady accounting because they did not want to lose the lucrative big relationship. So anytime the fees for the auditor, get out of sync with the audit fees. So you have, you know, and the rule of thumb is kind of 10%. Are, are all the other things that the auditor is doing more than 10% of the total fees that they're providing? Then you've sort of got this idea that maybe they're, you know, they're going to take their eye off the ball, that the consulting and tax and other work that they're doing for the client could become more important than calling out the company um, if they're if they're going uh, you know uh, rogue. Okay. Should yeah. we talk Palantir? Yeah, we can get into. Uh, yeah, I guess we wanted to talk about some specific examples. Um, sure. Palantir is a new S one that came out, and I think you wrote a couple of you know things that you saw in their S one. Um, you know, it, you mentioned before about the control stuff and internal controls and how that can be something that investors look for in a new company. Uh, what is Ernst & Young's history with Palantir and uh, the internal controls you saw with them? So Ernst & Young in particular has, has a record in recent years of um, when they are the auditor of a new IPO, um, 
Those IPOs don't uh, admit to any kind of material weaknesses and in internal controls. So, you know, what are we talking about material weaknesses and in internal controls? Um, your financial reporting and financial accounting structure is weak because, you know, you don't have enough competent accounting people. You don't have good systems. You um, are not following. You don't have people that know the, the rules. Um, you have made mistakes in things like taxes. You know, like there's a, you, you're com as a company, you have a history of not getting your accounting or accounting right. And it's because you're not focusing on that. You're not prioritizing that. You don't have competent people doing that. You're not willing to pay outside expertise for that. But Ernst & Young has a history of, in recent years, all of their IPOs, WeWork, okay, which was almost, almost there, okay, Palantir, and several others that I've written about, where by zero, they, they never notice anything that rises to a material weakness. Now, nowadays, um, because of all of the reforms and Jobs Act and all of these ways to make it easier to IPO, the auditor doesn't have to give an opinion on these things, a formal opinion, right out of the gate. Okay, and depending on the size of company, they get longer in order to have to pay for that. However, the auditor has to provide audited financial statements. So everybody who goes out IPO has to have two or three years of audited financial statements to back up the IPO. And so if the auditor notices something while they're doing those audits, they have an obligation to tell management. And if they told management, management has an obligation to disclose it. And curiously, in the EY clients in the last few years, seems like nobody ever notices anything. And that is noticeable because if you do the stats for all the other big four, they do. Not a lot, not all the time, not every time, not sometimes when they should, but there's always something, right? Because, I mean, new companies, young companies, companies that are focused on tech and fintech and, you know, they don't want to, we know how they are. They don't want to do that. And so that's why the auditor is there to kind of keep them on the program, make sure that they're focused on this stuff so that when they get bigger, when they get more scrutiny, when they get, you know, under the, 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 uh, you know, uh, umbrella of the SEC, they've got their act together. And if you let them get away with stuff and they go public, you're never going to rein them in. And so it's very noticeable that EY consistently in the last few years, their IPOs never have these issues. And Palantir is one where, you know, again, I call them the immaculate IPOs. You know, they're just, everybody's doing everything perfectly. And yet you can see that, um, you know, there's issues. There's things that, you know, they could do better. And I, you know, in the article that I pointed you to about Palantir, um, you know, I pointed out a few of these things that, you know, they, they're a little odd. They're an odd company. Um, you know, in particular, you know, I looked at, you know, they have, or they say they have service revenue, but they don't break it out, which tells me they probably don't have that much. Um, and, 
Um, you know, there's other things about um, how they had a change again with the revenue recognition rules. They got uh, a little positive impact because they were allowed to change how they recorded some of their deferred revenues related to some of these. They mostly sell licenses to, to their software so that people can do all this data analytics. Okay. Yeah, do you want to ask about follow-up with 606? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you have the specifics, but how did that new accounting measure uh, change the way that they reported revenue? And then also, I guess the follow-up would be uh, deferred revenue. Mm-hmm. So in general, when, peop- when the companies adopted the new revenue uh, standards, 80, 90% of them, used an approach called modified retrospective, which meant that when you were looking at the accounting information and saying, oh, I'm going to have to record this differently now. I'm not going to be able to record these revenues as quickly, or I'm going to have to record them more slowly. When you put those numbers up going forward in 2018, all of those companies that chose that methodology they didn't have to restate their prior period numbers. So they were putting up numbers with comparisons to prior years. Tesla was one that I wrote an article about also at MarketWatch. And there was an apples to oranges comparison. They were putting up 2018 numbers that were under the new standard, which may have treated certain kinds of revenue differently, but they weren't restating, they weren't creating comparable numbers for the prior years. Basically, they plug the impact into retained earnings and they just move forward. Other companies did. They actually went through that work. Microsoft, for example, went through that work and actually had comparable information. At this point, though, we're kind of past that period. So most companies only show comparable information for like the last two years. So if you're putting out uh, uh, results for 2019, you're going to have 2018 and 2017. So again, you've got a mishmash. You've got 2018 that's under the new standard and you've got 2017 that's not and 2019 that that is. Once you get to 2020 results, anybody who shows, you know, two years or less, it's all going to be on the new program. It's all going to be comparable. But for analysts, for others that look at, you know, back period data that build trends, it's something that I want you to keep in mind. In Palantir's case, um, they were... They did that modified retrospective. So they go public and their comparable information for anything uh, prior to 2018, okay, not consistent with what they put out for 2018, okay? Secondly, um, they um, were able to record a small catch-up because they looked at deferred revenue and they made a change um, in terms of how they were going to record some of their deferred revenue. Okay, not as significant. It's not a big thing. Um, but they looked at their long-term contracts for some of this licensing. And in some cases, um, they were able to ex- take the revenue in more quickly. Or they decided they could take the revenue in more quickly. So they've got these long-term licensing or subscription contracts. And again, they can look at that and say, it's all based on when are we going to actually perform the duties or provide the services that the contract is uh, covering? And when did we get the cash and how much cash do, are we holding back and sort of trying to make that, you know, assessment again and 
it's all about adjustment uh, uh, assumptions and estimates and, you know, and we don't see any of that usually. Some companies tell you a little bit more than others about what those assumptions are. Um, but, you know, uh, Palantir had very little, very, very, very little details about, you know, these things in this in the S1. Okay. And uh, I guess in general, I mean, this isn't really specifically about Palantir, but when I'm hearing all these things about, you know, revenue adjustments, um, adjusted EBITDA, it kind of makes me think, is it just, I mean, should investors just be caring about cash flow? Is that really what, you know, to evade all this? Should you just be looking at the operating cash flow statement? Well, I think that um, it's always uh, really important to look at the operating cash flow statement. I think that um, one of the, again, areas where companies have abused that, even that is when they start defining um, free cash flow according to their own sort of whims. So you want to really look at um, the definition, how they define free cash flow, and look at whether or not they change that definition over time to kind of meet their needs. Um, and it's what they do because, again, it's a non-GAAP metric. Um, you've also seen that uh, in the cash flow statement, companies can get really tricky and they're going to put something in uh, um, cash flow from financing versus cash flow from operation. You know, they're going to move stuff around. Um, and it's a, it's a tough thing to catch. But... Moving things around will make your ratios look better. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, definitely you should look at cash flow. I mean, one of the most important things uh, I I was looking at, um, well, Disney. Um, I looked at Disney uh, during the COVID period. So in these, uh, you know, this first quarter, second quarter of 2020, and they had significant, significant, significant decrease in revenue, in particular in the theme parks, right? Because the, the parks are closed, right? Um, and yet, you know, they did report some revenue. And then I looked at a historical uh, trend of their revenues, deferred revenues, and their cash flow. It didn't sink. So when you've got cash flow that's not following revenues, when you've got deferred revenues that seem to be manipulated in terms of they're not following a logical pattern of, okay, you know, stuff goes into deferred revenue because we collect something in advance and then, you know, we're going to recognize it over a reasonable time and that's predictable and it follows the way we operate, the way our business model works. But instead, you know, deferred revenue is used as a cookie jar and they pull it in when they need to or when they want to. But yet neither of those numbers matches how much cash they're showing. So when cash gets out of sync with what you're reporting as revenues, um, I mean, it's always useful when you have a company that is reporting really, you know, just, you know, revenue growth that's just you know, unbelievable and consistent and, you know, hockey stick kind of thing to look at the cash. Does the cash track it? And does it track it consistently? Or does the cash, you know, kind of go like this? Or is the cash always lagging way too long? Are they, you know, Disney was also borrowing. They had to raise a lot of money um, during that period. And you're going, if they're showing these revenues, why do they have to raise money? 
you know, where's the cash? I mean, people have raised that issue with Tesla a lot. You know, you have revenue, 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 and, you know, where's the cash? Why do they have to keep raising money? You know, when are they getting the cash? What What's happening to the cash that matches up with these revenues that they're reporting or the deferred revenues related to all of the different, you know, um, accessories and stuff, you know, the, the software accessories that they're selling. So tracking those, especially in a company that reports high growth or consistent high growth or unbelievable growth, you know, especially that's, that's doesn't sync with the economic environment or what you would expect or is contrary to what other companies in their, in their cohort are doing. Um, look at the cash. Where's the cash? Are they actually reporting any cash? Yeah, and I think an example of that is Amazon. So a lot of you know, a lot of people talk about how they weren't, you know, technically gap profitable for a lot of time, and that's because they're reinvesting in the business. But they were generating a lot of cash during that time, and they've been free cash flow positive for you know over a decade. So, right. Well, Amazon is an interesting um, situation because, as you said, it's the opposite. So why weren't they reporting a profit, and yet they're reporting all this cash? And I, re- I wrote about Amazon a long time ago and said, Jeff Bezos hates paying taxes. That's true. <laughs> and Amazon, Amazon accumulates all kinds of um, tax credits and other kinds of tax, you know, um, uh, deferred tax kind of uh, issues. And they've got, you know, tax is a really big deal with Amazon. And as soon as Amazon has a tax credit or something that they need to plug in that's expiring. In other words, you can't take a tax credit unless you actually have a profit because it's an offset to your taxes. Think about the Trump situation and what they reported, what the New York Times reported. You, If you have credits, you've earned credits for one reason or another, you can't take them unless they're offsetting an actual profit. And if you're constantly showing losses, then they sit over here and they wait for when you're going to actually show a profit and then you can offset your tax liability. So what does Amazon do? Whenever those tax credits are expiring or near expiring, that's the quarter that they report a profit just enough to absorb the, the tax credit. Interesting. So they found a loophole because this technically isn't a le- it's not illegal, but they found a loophole so they can, uh, you know. Right. And there was, you know, there were there were people that wrote about how Amazon has people, you know, full time who try to look at, you know, what they should report every quarter. I remember it was uh, one of the Ben's from uh, from Andreessen Horowitz. I can't remember if it was Ben Horowitz or the other Ben, but they wrote an article and I wrote about it. And it was like, how much more blatant can you be? They're saying Amazon is so successful because they focus on free cash flow and they focus on the share price. And they don't focus on, you know, they, they reinvest, you know, this money, blah, blah, blah. And they have people full time focused on making sure that they spend all the money that they bring in on things that they can get tax deductions for or generate tax credits for because Jeff Bezos hates paying taxes. <laughs> okay, I think... Uh... Got to move on to another company. We just have a few questions uh, about Uber. Uh, my question is that they, why do they recognize revenue differently than Lyft? I, I saw, I think that you mentioned that. And then how do they recognize it differently? So Uber and Lyft are the same but different in that 
they both recognize uh, net revenue, okay, not gross revenue. But Uber is much more aggressive in terms of all of the different adjustments and using all kinds of different other non-GAAP metrics, um, and they're constantly talking to the SEC about that. However, Lyft also just recently had a comment letter from the SEC about, again, its non-GAAP metrics and adjusted EBITDA and all kinds of other metrics that it's using. So they're both sort of aggressive, but Uber is much more aggressive. What's interesting with Uber and Lyft is that they're both audited by PwC in San Jose. Okay. And they have, and they're, and they're recognizing revenue differently. That is, that is interesting. And, and they're, they're treating certain things differently. And it just goes to show you that even if you have an auditor, even if you have an auditor that's may even be sharing sort of the staff in the same office. So the partners are different, but the staff is the same. And you have PwC putting out, you know, really detailed and thoughtful and technical guidance about every little detail, you know, about how you're supposed to do stuff. In the end, a company and their executive, its executives can be extremely powerful and influential in terms of we want to do this this way. We define our business this way. We see how we're handling this this way and coming up with the rationalization and the specific partner, that's his franchise, his client, right? He's like, yeah, let's see how we can work this out. The other difference between Uber and Lyft is, of course, Uber has significantly more international operations than Lyft does. And Uber has a significantly different approach to um, the last time I looked to taking cash, which is hilarious. Um, so they've got a whole process, a whole program, a whole deal that they have to do because in countries like Brazil, okay, they have to take cash. Right. And so changes everything. And so they are sort of different companies in that they do in some cases have different issues and different uh, business uh, issues that are unique to where they're at and their, their maturity, their, their, their organizational maturity. But in general, it's the same business. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, there's any variation at all in how they're handling, you know, things like um, uh, in my initial articles about those two when they first came out were about how they really handled things like marketing expenses and incentives to the drivers and things that are very similar in both businesses, but which, you know, put a different, you know, wrapper around it. And one will rationalize one approach with their, audit partner and another will rationalize their their approach with their audit partner and the SEC will say give us a good argument and we're okay okay and what I know that when we look at uber we see that giant adjusted EBITDA I mean adjustment um, and I know they talk about say like either 2021 or 2022 uh, they're gonna get to you know quote profitability. Um, and we've discussed this already, but maybe you could re-harp on like how you know companies are saying they're going to get to a profitability, but in reality they're adjusting for you know in Uber's case maybe something like five hundred million dollars in stock-based compensation. Right. So 
It's pretty, it's pretty chronic that companies like that will be talking about, we're going to get to profitability. And they're talking about non-gap profitability. They're not talking about gap profitability. And they're talking about getting to some number that is, is manufactured. And in many of these companies, it's manufactured in a very inconsistent, um, you know, kind of pick and choose uh, way. So they're, they're choosing, as you said, you know, this, from this long list of menu items, and they're not even being consistent from quarter to quarter in terms of what those menu items are. And the SEC does try to look and say, you know, if you're including it one quarter, why wouldn't you include it the following quarter? Um, you got to include things that are negative as well as positive. You, know, you sort of have to be consistent. You can't just cherry pick all the positive stuff and leave off the negative stuff. There is a there is a rationale though for sometimes uh, lowballing your results, right? And that's the classic um, cookie jar mentality. So let's say that you know you've already uh, accomplished what you need to accomplish. You've already hit whatever estimates or or guidance you you've done. You don't need to go overboard, right? It's kind of like if you you know you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And you're shopping for the holidays and you already got the killer gift. You already have spent, you know, what you were planning on spending. There's no need to spend an extra 200 bucks on something else that's just going to sort of not be absorbed. Save that for the birthday or Valentine's Day, right? <laughs> and that's the that's the concept of a cookie jar, like right. diminishing marginal returns. You don't get any benefit in the market from going way over the top. You only need to get to where you need to get to. And so they will include or they will manage negative and positive in order to hit a number, which is what they need to get to. It's a classic GE, you know. Beat and did, it by didn't, uh, didn't Under Armour do that as well recently? They were just hitting. Well, Under Armour, you know, Under Armour is interesting because, you know, it was a big story, a big deal. Under Armour was the story that MarketWatch did not want to publish that I published on my own site instead. Oh which is what could be leading to these criminal charges, criminal charges, not just civil, not just SEC, but criminal investigation of Under Armour. What's interesting is we don't have any update. I left a year ago. Huh. There's a Wells notice. We don't have an update. Jay Clayton's SEC did not come and do anything on Under Armour. But Under Armour was chronic. There was all kinds of stuff. They were really looking at every single number and they needed to meet again a lot of that is often driven by executive compensation we don't need to go we don't need to like blow the whole wad we need to just get to where we need to get to if we hit the hit the targets then we save it for later save it for a rainy day for later okay all right i think we're going to hit our wrap-up questions uh i have the first one here what is one financial saying that you disagree with the audit is not designed to detect fraud. There it is. And it's been proven and it's been litigated and judges have said it and audit firms have paid significant damages award because it is true. The audit has to be designed uh, to detect higher risk due to fraud or material misstatement. And they have to do the audit and adjust their procedures in order to investigate and do that work. Why don't they want to do that? Well, before a fraud is uncovered, it's because they don't want to upset their client. 
right? They don't want to push back on their client and jeopardize the, the work. After it's discovered, they say the audit was not designed to detect fraud. Collusive frauds are hard to find. You know, if they lie to us, we'll never find it. It's because they're trying to avoid liability. Right. Okay. And yeah, do you think, I mean, uh, you know, companies pay the auditors to do the work. Do you think it would help if uh, some other entity paid the auditors and there wasn't that, you know, contractual relation, relationship where, you know, they're providing the services, they're you're making, you know, these auditors livings? Um, do you think that would help at all? That's sort of the, the $64,000 question. And it's sort of the thing that hangs every other reform or, or recommendation up. Um, Lynn Turner, the former SEC uh, chief accountant, who's sort of a big crank on the audit firms, has been a critic for a long time. He actually works a lot as an expert witness for uh, those that are suing the audit firms. So he has a lot of experience in this area. He actually continually proposes an even more dramatic um, recommendation, which is let's eliminate the mandate for audit completely. Who cares about the audit? Who pays attention to the audit? Does the audit have any value anymore? Take it out of the requirement in the securities law and let investors decide whether or not they want to pay in a particular situation. I don't agree with that. That's like sort of a pure libertarian perspective. He thinks that investors will most often say, yeah, we want auditors to, do we want to have somebody vet these accounts? I think not. Um, and I think that that really, really screws retail investors who can't, who don't have the, the critical mass to, you know, make sure that that happens. Uh, Theranos is a good example. Theranos, you know, they raised hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, uh, and they never had an audit. Why? Because those sophisticated investors, the Murdochs, the Carlos Slims, the DeVos, the Walmart family, whatever, they didn't want the auditors in the way. They didn't want to know what they didn't want to know. Interesting. All right. I'll hit the last question. Uh, what is one piece of advice you have for anyone considering a career in investing or, or maybe uh, journalism too? In general, nowadays, my advice, uh, I teach at American University. I teach MBAs. I talk to a lot of accounting students. I talk to a lot of uh, people who are CFAs, et cetera, people who are investing. You have to read. Okay, I know everybody has ADHD. Everybody, you know, is worried, you know, nobody has a short, a long attention span. But things like reading the cues of the case, you have to read and you have to keep learning and you have to keep like seeking out people to learn from and you have to stay active. I got a master's degree from University of Chicago at 53 years old. Okay, I got my first job in a newsroom at MarketWatch at that same age. I changed careers, I've changed jobs, resilience, change, you know, ability to sort of grow and change, constantly learning, um, you know, uh, eat your Wheaties, because uh, it, it's not easy out there. You got to keep up your strength, uh, your spiritual, your intellectual, your physical strength, but you're going to get rolled over if if you don't, and the, they're going to leave you in the dust, so... I'm a big reader. I'm a big researcher. I'm kind of a 24-7 workaholic. Um, but I also, there's a million things I can do. I never have, you know, a need to, uh, you know, uh, worry about where the next uh, dollar is coming from. There's always something. And uh, I 
you know, I'm excited by constantly meeting new people and learning new things from everybody that I, I run, run across. So mind open and uh, stay hungry. Sweet. All right. all right. I think that's all the questions we have. Thank you for joining us, Francine. You're welcome. All right. Welcome back in. Next up, we have hot water. I just have two. How many do you have? Three. Okay. Always, always beating you by one, uh, one up in the other. I but, think, I think we might have different ones this time. So do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. Uh, this is a question from Hotlanta Capital. Um, you might be laughing, but that's a very normal name for someone on Twitter. Uh, just put something yeah. crazy and then capital in front. Uh, he asked, if SaaS companies are so great, why do they need to spend 50 to 90% of their revenue on a sales force? What do you think about that? you think he's onto something there? Yeah. I mean, I think they talked about this on value after hours and there's such, there are SaaS businesses that really are that great. Well, Adobe, yeah, I mean. But a lot of them are dependent on other SaaS businesses. Oh yeah. I mean, okay. That's true. There is a little bit of a chain banking type deal where everyone's paying for each other's, but yeah, like someone like Adobe who's generating 30% free cash flow margins they obviously have that lock-in. They don't need the sales force. The product you know, says what it is. The value proposition is there. But some of these companies that are spending, you know, say they got $200 million in revenue and they're spending $130 million on marketing and their revenue is growing at like 25%, I don't know, suspect to me. Yeah, and that is kind of to go on like a tangent here. A lot of people see gross margin and they're like, all right, well, that is the margin – that they could reach, like not necessarily, but uh, or like you know, they subtract like twenty percent. Yeah, they're like, well, at scale, they could get close to their gross margins, and so they see these high gross margins, and it seems all appealing. A lot of those operating expenses don't just go away. Like, there's certain operating expenses that really scale with the business, mm-hmm. and so you know, go into the ten k, ten q, whatever. Go to their operating expenses. They categorize them there, and they tell you what it is. Uh, and if you think that that's going to scale with the business, maybe. You should be looking at the business a little differently. I also like to do, um, and you don't need to do like a just divide it, but R&D spend versus sales and marketing spend. Um, if R&D spend is a lot lower than sales and marketing spend, that shows me that they might be trying to get too much revenue right now and they're not worried about the long-term uh, product. Um, I don't know whether there's like any, I don't know, it's not like black or white or anything like that, but if you see that R&D spend is low as a percentage of revenue and sales and marketing is high, to me, I like it the other way around. Yeah, um, and that's also where stickiness comes into play because if you are if you spend a lot of sale on sales and marketing, but you don't have to do it all the time because they just stick around, you don't have to keep spending on them, yeah. that's one thing. But if you're Uber and you have to go acquire a customer multiple times, that's probably you know not as scalable. <laughs> and giving them all the discounts. All right, my next one is Warren Buffett. Apparently, Chamath. Uh, who I have no disrespect for, but apparently he is the next Buffett, according to Josh Brown. Uh, do you agree or disagree? Okay, you know what I'm going to say. I disagree. Uh, <laughs> Chamath yeah. is good, but he is a little the more author. aggressive. He's a little more uh, risk tolerant. He seems and like the opposite of Buffett. People use that headline, I think, for clicks because no one is – there's, there's no next Warren. Like, uh, he's... Well, you got to establish... I mean, there could be. I mean, it's not like... Potentially, but... You got to establish like a 40, 50-year track record, you know? It takes a long time. Well, I mean, it's not to say there aren't investors that could emulate his returns, but no one's going to be able to teach the way, you know, 
he's taught uh, and have the impact. So far, it doesn't look like there's going to be as many people that have the impact on the average investor that he had. Yeah, and it seems like you know Buffett's so super patient. Chamath is very the opposite. He doesn't seem like it's not. Again, it's not bad. He's very aggressive with his deals. He, well, I mean, you know, he's doing deals like every week. It seems like, um, and that's not a bad thing if you're trying to get a lot of investments into things you like. But Buffett waits sometimes years and years and years before making one, uh, which, again, just contrasting styles, but they're totally not the same. No, yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's just a headline to like grab clicks. Yeah, <laughs> it gets people. They knew, ang- they knew the reaction they'd get. It gets people angry. Uh, all right, last one for me is AUM. BlackRock hit eight point seven trillion dollars in AUM this year, up seventeen percent. Uh, can they get to ten trillion? Do you think? And is how far is passive going to go? These are hard questions, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. They are hard questions. Uh, yeah, it seems like based on natural compounding, they could get to ten trillion. I don't know. No, I know. <laughs> I know. Seem realistic. Yeah, that's not a, that's not a hard question. But the passive stuff. Do you think? I mean, you see these numbers. You see Schwab. You see Vanguard have upwards of a little bit less than them, but still in the multi trillions of dollars. And I just think it's not. I think the people that argue that passive, whether you understand how it works or not doesn't have an effect on the market. If you argue it doesn't have an effect on the market, I think you're just in denial at this point. You know, does it affect the long-term investor who has a, you know, decades-long time horizon? Maybe not. But it does have effect, yeah. I think. Because uh, when people ask, like, I'm a terrible teacher when other people ask me for, for like, uh, when people are beginning, like, just starting out, I uh, yeah. almost always, I say, just index. You know, play it safe, yeah. index, uh dollar cost average into an S&P 500 index. I don't know all 500 companies that are in there. And I would say 99% of the people that are indexed don't. So a lot of people are buying stuff they don't know, which is creating, I assume, a lot of ownership. If if you're really interested in this stuff, I would definitely go listen to like Michael Green more than myself. Yeah, you gotta, yeah he, uh, you might have to listen to him a few times because it's, it's hard to grasp, but... Yeah, and I don't even know if he's right, but I think it's just ignoring the passive stuff if you're someone that has a shorter-term time horizon or even like if you're worried about short-term volatility. I just think it's foolish. I don't know. All right, what are your hot waters? Uh, Intel is in hot water, I guess. I don't know if it's Intel versus ex-CEO, but... Aren't they? Oh, it's... Yeah, the CEO is the ex-CEO, right? (laughs) Remember when we talked about... Dan? Is it Dan Loeb? It's Dan Loeb, right? Yeah. And third point, taking an activist stake. Well, this week... uh, XEO, I guess. Bob Swan stepped down uh, and Dan Loeb tweeted, Swan is a class act and did the right thing for all stakeholders stepping aside for Gelsinger. Uh, troll, so we dude. What a troll. Watched what a troll. Loeb live tweet a hostile takeover. What a troll, dude. I My mean, God. That's pretty cool. We kind of got to watch this thing play out over Twitter. Oh, yeah. You got to see it on Twitter. I don't know. That's exciting. But I would, <laughs> if I was Bob, I'd be like, fuck, like, screw you, Dan. Like, we saw this. Uh, I mean, it was not that bold of a prediction, but no, he no. took the stake, told told everyone about it on Twitter, and was like, "All right, we think there should be some changes." And then a week later, he's like, "Kudos to the CEO for stepping down." God, it's like he had no choice. And the stock went up like eight um, percent. I bet Bob has a great big. I don't think he's up. In the long run, I think he'll be fine. He probably has tens of millions in stock. 
um, from his executive package. So I think he'll be okay. But for that day, I would be very upset if I was him. Yeah, I don't think he's struggling financially. But uh, second one here, the World Health Organization is in hot water almost exactly a year ago today. I think maybe. Oh, wow. Few, actually, maybe like year and five days. Uh, the WHO, or the World Health Organization, announced after preliminary investigations conducted by Chinese authorities, they found no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of the novel coronavirus. Yeah. Talk about a cold take. Yeah, well, they didn't... F- <laughs> Look, yeah, they were totally wrong. But technically, at that point, unless they were just lying, maybe they didn't have the evidence yet. You know what I mean? Is that maybe the coldest take of all time? <laughs> yeah, but look, like they're trying to investigate it. If they hadn't found the evidence yet, it's, but it's probably you have tweeted it. Yeah, yeah, saying you hadn't found like just because you hadn't found something yet doesn't mean it wasn't there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's not like they were like, oh, this is definitive. They were like, we haven't found anything yet. But it's like you shouldn't have proclaimed that at that point. I don't know. Definitely cold take. Um, and yeah, they've had a tough go of it in 2020. You remember that Taiwan video where they were like, what the, remember that one where the, the so. Taiwan Taiwanese lady talking about Taiwan independence and the guy shut it down. It was a little weird. But yeah. Anyway, okay. Well, those are the two that I had. Buy, sell, hold. The theme is managers slash capital allocators to bet on for the next three years. Chamath, Chamath, John W.B. Rich. Okay. Bill Ackman and Pershing Square, Chamath and Social Capital, or Buffett and Berkshire? Keep hmm. in mind, it's the next three years. Next three years? Uh, so you're betting on mean reversion or blow off top? Uh, I'm looking at per- Pershing Square to see if they're trading at a discount to NAV. <laughs> uh, I'd probably go Pershing Square. Chamath, I'm selling. I'm sorry, I just don't like his strategy. And I'm holding Buffett. I mean, Berkshire seems like it's impossible. It's unless there's just a hurricane because of their super cat strategy or whatever with their you know reinsurance stuff. Unless there's a, just a giant hurricane that wipes out the whole southeast. I I almost I mean I hate saying it's impossible, but it feels to me like it's impossible to lose money with Berkshire right now. Now will you gain that much? I don't know, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, but I'd probably buy Berkshire Square. I don't know. Seems like they're really finding their stride. Yeah. Ackman, I gained a lot of uh, admiration for Ackman after his, uh, when I was listening to the shareholder meeting, the Berkshire shareholders meeting. And in like 95, 1995, I heard him ask a question. I was like, okay. And he was like a nobody at the time. He's like, I'm William Ackman from New York. And he asked like a good question. I was like, okay, (laughs) he's... (laughs) He's no, a he's prodigy. legit. Yeah, we don't want to call him a prodigy. You just said there could be no one like Buffett. So, all right. Well, but way. you could get Pershing Square at thirty percent discount to Nav like two years ago. Um, I think Med Faber was big on that. I was looking at it and I was like, eh, Ackman, he's not good after Herbalife, but they've crushed it. I think they've gone up fifty percent the last two years. So, what would you choose? Yeah, I'd probably go the same. I don't know. If we're betting on blow off top for the next three years, I might go Chamath because a lot of those names, oh, there is a Chamath yeah. premium in this market. Um, oh, yeah. But that's. Put his name on a SPAC and you're pretty much guaranteed, you know, you're well, getting a premium. Yeah, the companies he's been in is up 300% this year. So that's not a sign of excess. Um, anecdotal evidence. Uh, so I've got two. Uh, the first one for me is Tegas. We got a free trial and no, we're not sponsored by them or anything, but. It's like it's a pretty cool service. It's very useful. Yeah, 
Do you want to describe what they do for anyone that's actually uh, interested? Yeah, I feel like we're just, this whole show has been free ads. Uh, If you're listening for the first time, we definitely don't do this. But if you are interested and are like some sort of fund manager, uh, yeah, I mean, they have transcripts of expert calls. um, So it's not, it's kind of like similar to what you get for a conference call transcript. But it's like, uh, say you're a fund manager, you pay to get a call with an expert in a certain field that's an, or an expert on a certain company, they discuss it. And then if you subscribe to TGIS, you get a free transcript of it. You can learn a lot. And that's like, great. It's good stuff. Learn it's a not lot. just like conference calls. You're getting like sort of bland management commentary and they're going to give you probably fluff. Whereas yeah. these are like sometimes ex-employees, ex-execs. Less fluff. Less fluff. And it's, they're very frank. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's definitely uh, – I don't know. I've really enjoyed it. But number two, our producer – got the first part of the vaccine and so question once you get uh, the second part what do you think bill gates will want to do with your body yeah on the first day he has it well we all know that yeah well you can tweet about it from your phone that you know, doesn't track it but he's smiling over there uh, yeah but that was a good joke ryan yeah anyway well that was my yeah there's my joke for the day what do you have for anecdotal Okay, I saw someone tweet a Yeti water bottle, and the question was 50 bucks for a water bottle? Like, you know, this is ridiculous. And I thought, you know, man, Yeti has some strong pricing power. Do you agree? Uh, I mean, as a customer, no, not really. But uh, looking at it from other people that buy it, yeah. Like, I, as a customer, could really kind of care less what mug I have to hold my coffee in, but... uh, Oh, yeah, and I whatever. could care what less what phone I have, but people still pay, you know. There's a lot of other people that would pay 400 buck premium for an iPhone. Yeah, I do see people, I mean, the data shows. <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't Yeti s- sales show. Yeah, I mean, they. it's weird how much it doesn't, it's one of those things that doesn't make sense. It's kind of like Peloton, where you're like, people really paying this much for them? Like, yeah, and they love it. Yeah, I guess maybe there's the uh, there's no Yeti community aspect. Maybe there is. Maybe it's a social no, media campaign. Definitely, definitely. There's definitely a Yeti community aspect because of the outdoor, like you know, hunting outdoors, stuff like that, camping, and like frat, like coolers. Uh, yeah, and young, yeah, <laughs> young, uh, young partiers as well. Yeah, the hats are big. You know, the trucker hat. Yeah. If you're a girl and you're not wearing a trucker Yeti or Patagonia hat, you know. Okay. Uh, any others? That is itch. How do you think I'm doing? How do you? One to ten, how do you think I'm feeling about my challenge of not mentioning those two popular things? Tesla and Bitcoin. Uh, since he's I don't know what you're them. referring to, but... Uh, I don't know. You've been good so far. I see you liking stuff on your Twitter. Oh, I can like stuff all I want. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not... To- they still live in rent-free in your head, but... Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I think I'm about at like 70% frustrated that I can't <laughs> say anything. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, Francine, for coming on. Mm-hmm. Um, am I forgetting any big show? show CCM yeah. is the code for 7investing. Sorry, we've thrown like an overload of sponsorships on here today, or it feels like it. But uh, yeah, we're not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.